people, welcome to Private Equity Laid Bare, the podcast. Today we are going to talk about a red hot market, uh, which is called private debt, just like there is private equity, there is private debt. And we have two guests today for the price of one. We have Cassie and Eric, and they are going to tell us what private debt is about, and in particular, give us an idea about the European landscape uh, in that industry. So Eric and Cassie, thank you very much for um, being with us today. Um, can you please tell us briefly what is it you do in terms of job? What does your job consist of? And then we will jump into the topic of private debt. Thanks, Ludovic. Happy to, um, to kick it off. Uh, my name is um, Eric Kapp. I'm a partner at Pemberton, um, which is a European direct lending firm specializing in, in private debt. And I run our origination team, which is responsible for going out and finding um, investments for our various funds and um, strategies. You know, my background, you know, briefly, I've been in uh, leverage finance, part of private debt as part of that for 30 plus years, having started uh, in investment banking, then graduate school, then over to Europe in 98, and then worked for JP Morgan and RBS before coming to Pemberton. Thank you. And, and you, Cassie? Hi, uh, thank you for having me. My name is Cassie Rivilla-Luttercourt, and I'm a director at Pemberton as well. Um, my focus is on originating, structuring, and executing investments in the UK. I've been in private debt for three years now. And uh, prior to that, my, my experience um, is in investment banking and leverage finance um, for over 10 years. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So let's jump in. What, what is this private debt? What, what defines it? Well, it's a, it's a super interesting asset class. And Ludovic, you made the distinction uh, or mentioned private equity. Well, private debt is the analog for private equity. So um, for many companies historically, if you wanted to access equity capital, you went to the public markets. And then over time, an alternative asset class developed um, called private equity, which gave companies access to private equity capital. Private debt, the same thing. Historically, if you were a big company, you had access to the public um, you know, debt markets. And then if you were a smaller company, a medium-sized company, mid-cap company, as we focus on, the only place to get debt were banks. And over time, companies said, well, you know, gee, I don't want to access the bank market. Are there other investors that will lend me um, you know, bank loans? And that basically evolved into the private debt market. And that gave institutional investors through platforms like Pemberton access to mid-cap corporate lending, which is essentially a bilateral loan between a company and a firm like Pemberton. Behind Pemberton are uh, institutional investors, insurance companies, and pension funds. And isn't there a, a matter of, of regulation? Because uh, one would think that the reason why only banks were lending uh, and otherwise it was like the public debt market was because only banks were allowed to, to lend. Like I cannot set up a business tomorrow that says I'm just a lender. I'm a bank. That's it. Um, so how does it work? I guess there is a, 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 it's connected to regulation environment, no? Mm. Yeah, I think that, that, that that's right. And historically, you know, banks were the main, you know, intermediary between deposits, depositors and lenders. So basically, in order to get capital into uh, the, the, you know, the, the corporate market or other markets, 
you know, especially in the mid-cap market, banks are intermediaries. Banks are regulated entities. They're leveraged entities. They're typically levered, you know, anywhere from seven to one to 10 to one. And as a result, there's a lot of regulation around protecting uh, customer, um, you know, deposits. And that imposes a lot of restrictions on bank lending, whether it be the number of loans you can make, the jurisdictions you can make them to, the amount of money you can lend to any single company, with the idea of protecting depositors, which are ultimately banks are ultimately taxpayer backed. In the private debt market, and this is not nothing to do with retail, so we're not talking about individuals lending to companies, we're talking about large, sophisticated institutional investors who have the sophistication to lend through platforms like Pemberton directly to companies. So as a result, you know, it is a it is an unregulated market. And the regulation is really within those institutional investors as to the diversity of their investments, who they lend to, their manager selection, et cetera. Because really we're talking about private, you know, alternatives with which private debt is part of, representing today between you know two and ten percent of a large institutional investor's investment portfolio, which includes equities, public bonds, government bonds, et cetera. So so the this um, you say it, it it was it doesn't need to be regulated because there is no depositors on the hook, so that, that, that's cool. But so it means also that there was no change in regulations that gave rise to private debt. Like private debt could have existed in the two thousands and in the nineties. Uh, there was no particular restrictions to do it. It just it didn't happen then. Yeah, I think I think the restrictions, there are restrictions sort of over time, there are sort of a couple of things that happened at the same time. So the first thing is that banks became increasingly regulated in Europe through Basel I, Basel II, and Basel III. And that generally what it did is it forced banks to become safer, safer institutions because they were, as I said, they were taxpayer backed. So they basically restricted the size of their balance sheets. They required them to raise more equity capital. It reduced something called single name concentration is the amount of money you can lend to any single corporate. So regulation basically drove bank balance sheets lower and restricted the amount of capital they could bring in to um, corporate um, to corporate customers. You know, at the same time, and this happened really, it was accelerated post the, the GFC. So the global financial crisis at the same time during the GFC, the rate market collapsed. So basically, government bond yields through, you know, firstly, the introduction of the euro and the eurozone, and secondly, the GFC, the rates you could get in government bonds went in some countries like Italy, for instance, used an outlier, went from, you know, 7% to effectively 1% or less than 1%. And this lower for longer caused institutions to lose access to yield, um, you know, yielding type fixed income. So government bonds or corporate bonds, which paid two, three, four, five, six, seven percent. So it forced institutions to look to alternative ways to maintain their yields and sort of current levels of income, whether that be for an insurance company or a pension fund to pay their, um, you know, savers, et cetera. For yeah, a, although for the, this emphasis on, on yield is always a bit strange because the yield is a mm. maximum you can earn. It shouldn't be something people focus on. So if Italy went from 5% to 1%, is because the odds of them not repaying went down. And so your expected return is what should matter to you. And maybe it didn't change compared to the world where Italy was at 6%. Well, so the yield is a very weird anchor number that people have. It's, it's the yeah. 
max you can earn. Why would people anchor so much on the max? It, it should be the expectation. Well, think about it this side. So on the one hand, you've got the, what you can earn on the assets. On the other hand, you have the promises you've made in the case of an insurance company to a policyholder or in the case of a pension fund to your retirees. So you basically, you're a, you're a trustee of, of a group of trustees, a public pension fund, and you've said to your members, we're going to get over time 7 to 8% returns on our investments. At the same time, so you've made those promises to your savers effectively. At the same time, the investments you need to basically drive those returns, and a big chunk of that has been fixed income, government bonds and corporate bonds have gone down over time. So they've gone right so from 7% to 1%. So what you can get in the market has gone down, but what you've promised your members or your pensioners yeah, but it, has stayed it's, roughly It's not because you're going to go to something that has a max of 7% and you promise 7% that you will get 7%. There is a probability that you don't get the 7%. So you don't know if mm. you know, you're not in the same situation as before where you, know, you, you still would get on expectation 1%. Yeah. But if you look at them, they, they haven't really changed. They haven't really lowered their sort of promises, you know, that much. So the market has dropped whatever it is, three, 400, 500 basis points, 600 basis points. And at the same time, you know, the promises people have made to pensioners or to policyholders, you know, have not gone down, um, you know, significantly. So that gap, right, between what you have told as a trustee your, um, as I said, your customers essentially, and what's available in the market has gone down. So this search for yield, and this is whether it does not just private debt, it can be infrastructure assets, it can be alternatives, it can be renewables, it can be lots of stuff. So institutions reaching out to alternatives, so anything that's not a traditional public market, has really like gained momentum over the last, you know, really since the GFC. And that's causing these institutions to seek out sort of alternative ways to invest their portfolios. Yeah, so that makes sense. So this is why people are doing it clearly. And so, and we understand now why the banks have, um, well, they were kind of the only player in the 19 and 2000s and there was no reason for someone else to step in and be a, a pseudo bank or shadow bank. And then as the banks have retreated um, some, shadow banks came in and said, well, I can act as a bank. Uh, I don't have depositors and I'm going to pick up on the riskier part then and I don't need to be regulated. So, um, so that's great background. Thank you. That makes sense. Um, but is there a difference then between what banks offer the public markets and the private debt market? What would be the, the, the key differences? Is it that the banks focus on just safe things like you, you said earlier? And then private debt will go on riskier things. So there are some more fundamental differences. So we have basically free markets, banks, public debt, and private debt. What, what is the difference? Yeah, and sure, I'll, I'll try to cover that off. Um, if I take a look at public markets first, um, there's some very key um, differences between public uh, instruments and the private debt space. So. Obviously, as it, you know, it, it does what it says on the tin. So public means that these instruments are publicly available to trade. That is the key difference. And in most instances, these are rated instruments. Um, these instruments will also be typically larger in size. So a liquid and public you know, loan or bond will typically be 250 million uh, euro equivalent and above. 
um, and ratings, you know, it could be non-investment grade, it could be investment grade, um, and it will be traded on a, on a market, depending on the, on the type of instrument, there will be different markets available for that. And so what that means, there's generally a, a, a supply and demand, and there will be liquid prices available to exchange those securities. Uh, in the private debt, there is no secondary market. So a key um, point to understand around the risk around private debt is that it, it is more of a long-term investment, closer to private equity in the sense that it would be unusual to trade um, or to transfer a, a you know, private equity investment. Um, and how it would really work is you would invest that, that at the outset um, and typically hold that investment you know, for a maximum of seven years, which is the, the typical maturity of, of a private debt instrument. On average, however, these instruments will have a, an average life of, of about three, four years. Um, uh, however, in the market. there has been the development of a secondary market for private equity. So do you expect the development of a secondary market for private debt for the exact same reason? Like, you know, I'm, I'm an institutional investor. I hold a big chunk of debt in whatever. And then I may find another institutional investor to buy it from me. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't there be a development mm -hmm. of a secondary market for private debt? Yeah, I think it's not um, it's not impossible. I think at the moment it's it's not it's not really a feature of the market. But that's not to say that portfolios of uh, private loans could be traded. Um, you know, in the same way that you see BWICs in, in in the liquid market, or you see um, you know you, you do see leveraged loans trading in a you know more illiquid fashion than say a public bond. But there yeah. is a market. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think what you're saying, I think you're right. I think they will trade over time. So there are specialists in secondary private equity, like Collar Capital, for instance. But that market took probably 25 years to really develop when the asset class became quite mature. In the case of private equity, in Europe, you know, private debt's relatively new. But I think you're right. I think over time, as these portfolios mature, I think there will be secondary trading of private debt now. We do trade, for instance, there are small pieces of private debt which trade from time to time between institutions. So, for instance, we'll do a hundred million loan and we may trade 10 million of that to another, another institutional investor, another fund. That would be sort of it's not common, but it happens from time to time. I think sort of beyond that is whether, let's say we have 10 billion of private loans, we trade in a variety of funds, we trade a hundred million of that to a big in a big secondary trade to a firm which specializes in sort of gathering up secondary pools of, you know, private loans, you know, through either a fund structure or directly. I, I think you're right. I think that definitely will happen. It's probably a little bit new for the moment. So Cassie, you, you went through, through the difference between the public debt and, and private debt. Mainly it's about the size is bigger for public debt because you have a huge fixed cost basically to list these things. And so you need to be big mm -hmm. enough to cover this fixed cost. And then the fact that you have a secondary market uh, on the public side and, and not on the private side. Um, what would be the key differences between a bank lending and mm -hmm. private debt? They both seem the same. One would be like a traditional bank and the other one a shadow bank. So what would be the difference between going to a bank and going to a private debt provider? Yeah, and that's right. I mean, it, it is much closer to, to bank lending in that it's ultimately a loan. In many instances, it's bilateral between two institutions, like it could be between a bank and a borrower or a fund uh, and a borrower. But the key differences is that um, these are, are 
you know, a, a derivation from what has happened through the financial crisis and thereafter, which is bank appetite is um, far lower in the sense of ticket sizes. So the amount that a bank is willing to lend to a company has greatly reduced. Um, you know, to put that into numbers, uh, a bank in the UK at the moment would lend probably a maximum of £25 million to a mid-sized company, um, whereas a fund could lend, you know, up to £300 million. So if you want to, if a, if a mid-sized company has a funding requirement of, let's say, 100, the options are, okay, I'm going to try and speak to four banks, but maybe you need to speak to five or six in case one of, or two of them doesn't get there. Um, or you could just speak to one counterparty. So really, um, that differentiation is um, ease of execution, um, which is far easier with uh, a private debt provider. Yeah, and the other and means- key... Yeah, that means also that then private debt has a very clear niche and, and very little competition. So the, the, the pricing is also a bit higher usually for private debt, right? Like the, the fees pricing. Exactly. Pricing is, you know, and it, and it varies in Europe jurisdiction to jurisdiction because the banking markets are different across countries. But I would say on average, um, private debt is priced around 200 basis points wider than, um, than banking uh, loans. Uh, the other key feature, though, is flexibility and customization. Um, so whilst banking documentation will be quite standardized um, and sort of the risk appetite will be really um, um, strict and very uh, inflexible in the sense that, you know, a bank will set its parameters and it won't really look to, okay, how do we differentiate between company A and company B, whereas in the private debt space, um, it's back to the point you were making. We're a niche um, specialist in in this type of lending. This is what we do every day, all day. So it really allows us to to think. Okay, how are we going to consider the credit risk um, of each company that we're lending to, and therefore, how do we incorporate that into the documentation to create the right flexibility for this business going forward, but still protecting the downside for our investors. So what that means is that customization of structures and documentation is um, far higher in in the private debt space versus in the banking market. Uh, that makes sense. And and but so does that mean that you can look at any kind of company because you know you're so flexible that you know anyone who wants to lend more than twenty five million would would come to you. So, so you you can look at anything. Or are there certain sector jurisdictions and 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 other aspects that would be more fitted for for what you want to do? Yes, I think in, in so private debt has a stronghold, I would say, in the key Western European um, jurisdictions. So UK, France and Germany are the key, you know, represent the vast majority of the volume of private debt transactions. So around 70 to 75 percent of, say, 2020 transactions were in those three countries, followed by, you know, Benelux, Spain, Italy, Nordics. Um, so all of those jurisdictions um, are, you know, are open to private debt uh, transactions. I think where, where, where the private debt space has gravitated towards is jurisdictions where um, lending regimes are, are you know, lender friendly or you know, bankruptcy regimes are more manageable. So, for instance, England is a, is, is a, good, a good jurisdiction for, for lenders, for instance. The other point to make is 
private debt has evolved pretty rapidly in Europe, considering it's only really been a, a true asset class, I would say, for you know, really a decade. Um, and there are different players that will focus on different niche um, types of investments. So if I think of size, um, you know, you, they, you will find a set of lenders who will look at companies, you know, from nearly no EBITDA all the way through to sort of 10, so small caps. And then you will have um, a deeper pool of liquidity for companies that are generating you know, 10 million of EBITDA up to say 50, but also companies that can lend to even larger businesses that are generating, you know, 70, 80, 100 million of EBITDA. Um, the other point is sectors, you know, what sectors are actually um, appropriate for, for private debt. And this goes back to credit worthiness and, and our credit assessment. And, you know, it will be no surprise that sectors like retail, fashion, um, you know, anything on the high street at the moment is really um, a sector that very few private lenders will, will lend to. Or if they are, they're doing it in structures that could be, you know, could have subordinated instruments, equity-like instruments to get the right, you know, the right returns for, for the risk they're taking. Um, similarly, highly cyclical industrial companies like automotive um, will also be less favoured by private debt. Um, and these will be typically picked up by the banking market um, through, through low levered structures, admittedly. Um, but also perhaps, um, you know, most of the large autos will be, you know, they can access public markets. But the very small auto type companies will have to rely on low levered banking structures. Well, one thing we haven't talked much about, though, or, or I don't think we pronounce that word, is, is CLOs. Mm. CLOs, like collateralized mm. loan obligations, are, are a very big deal as well for, for you know, lending to, to companies. So mm. how does it fit in the landscape that we just talked about? Well, it's, it's interesting you should say that because, you know, CLOs are a vehicle which really drive larger what we call public loan markets. So, for instance, as Cassie said before, if you recall, you know, to access the public market, you need to be roughly have issue debt in the size of 250 million euros or more. If you're a bigger company, you can do that in the bond market. So either an investment grade bond or a high yield bond. But if you want to access the loan market, you, the public loan market, uh, you do that via a, 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 what we call sort of a public term loan B. The principal buyers for term loan B are term loan Bs or CLOs. So CLOs are levered entities, which typically would have a European CLO would have, let's say, 100 names in it, 100 different borrowers, each having a maximum of a 2% or a 3% concentration. So widely dispersed pools of loans with very small concentrations and, you're, and highly structured. So limited in size by size of loan, by rating, by sector, and by geography to get, as I said, to get a highly diversified pool of capital. That structure would typically be levered, let's say, 10 to 1. So it'd be a very small slice of equity at the bottom and then typically different rated tranches. So on the liability side, you would have you know, equity, you'd have single B, double B, uh, triple B, and then you know, single A and triple A tranches. And those would buy assets, and the assets would be publicly rated term loan Bs. So it is a, you know, people call that part of the shadow banking system, but it's a way for institutional investors to access larger uh, larger loan deals. 
So very different from the private debt market, which really which we're specialized in, where the underlying borrower is a mid cap corporate. So a company, let's say, with revenues of less than 200 million. So, so the CLOs are for larger players, but who sources right. them? So is it the banks who source them and then they create the CLO vehicles that are then sold to institutional investors? Yeah, so basically there are, the banks would underwrite them. So a typical, like a bank, a, a JP Morgan or a Credit Suisse or a Deutsche Bank or whoever would underwrite those loans. And then they would distribute them to institutional investors. And the institutional investors would include CLOs. Now, those banks also, on the other side, have active, um, uh, on the advisory side, have active players, which basically will help structure and place the liabilities for CLO managers. So CLO manager is another form of um, you know, asset manager, which specializes in issuing uh, collateral, collateralized loan obligations. And the banks, and through their fixed income units, are helping them both warehouse you know, underwrite and raise the various tranches for those CLOs. So does it mean that if you want to borrow, let's say, less than 20 million, you're still going to a bank? If you want to borrow between 20 and 250 million, you probably go to a private debt shop and that's almost the only place. And if you're above 250, you can still go to a private debt shop. There are some large private debt provider that may still mm. pick it up. But you go back to a bank again, um, either so that they underwrite a public issuance so for your bonds or that they underwrite a CLO that will also then be distributed. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, it's, it's, it's close. I'd say that if you're in, and the one thing I would just, the, just the slight sort of nuance is that if you want to, if you're a mid cap company and want to raise, you know, call it 20 to 250 million, you also have the option to go into a group of banks and that's what they did historically. So I suppose let's see about 100 million, you'd go to four banks, which would own, hold 25 million each. And that's called a club bank deal. And that's what's being slowly replaced over time, or in some cases rapidly, by a single institution like a private debt manager like Pemberton, who could replace those four banks of 25 million each with one loan from us for 100 million. So a single counterparty loan is, let's say, between you and, 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 and me. And then if you are a larger company and you want to access the public loan market, you would typically go to a bank would underwrite that loan, take it on their balance sheet, and then distribute it to institutional investors, including CLOs. So, which they may or may not have been, you know, part of, you know, raising. And when you did, if you did a, let's say you did a 500 million, um, you know, euro uh, bank loan, so public term loan B, you could, you could, you would typically have in that deal, let's say, you know, a hundred or more investors in that, in that loan taking roughly 5 million each. Yeah. But when the banks would do like a syndicated deal, so like four banks took together a syndicated deal, they would also go to CLOs to sell it or they would keep it on their books? For a small company, they would keep it on their books. They would just keep the 25 million each. For a very, very large company, they would sell down to what they call sell down to zero. So they would sell the term loan B, so the term portion down to zero, and they might hold the revolver on their balance sheet. So 10, 15, 20 million of a revolving credit facility. Okay. So if I try to project um, below 20 million, 25 million lending, the banks will still have you know, their, their turf there, I guess. 
Um, mm -hmm. At 25 to 250, the banks are really at a big disadvantage. Uh, they can price it a bit lower, but they are at a huge disadvantage, very uh, uh, like by institutional constraints. And as private debt is developing, the funds that are raised are bigger and bigger, which means that they can sign bigger and bigger checks, which means that this 250 million barrier we've talked about is moving up and up in size. Mm -hmm which means that then you have more and more private debt cropping in to the 300, 400, 500 million, 1 billion uh, uh, loan, then the public debt market may feel the squeeze as well and the CLO may get a bit of a squeeze as well. Is that where we are heading? Is private debt really like pushing uh, barriers on the upside as well? I think, I think that's right. But I think there are some key differences between a, a private loan and a public loan. So for instance, in Europe, you know, 95% of public loans are covenant light, so they don't have maintenance tests. They don't require a company to maintain a net debt to EBITDA below a certain level. They're very flexible with respect to security that they offer lenders. They're very flexible in respect to um, the leakage. So basically dividends that can be paid through the structure. And you can do that if you're an investor, if you have a 1% position, if you don't like what the company's doing, yeah, you can just trade away that position. The, you the, can the sell thing it. Is, when, when it's publicly traded, you need things that are standardized, right? So I think the key difference, That's and correct. that was what Cassie was saying, is about mm -hmm. this flexibility versus standardization. So if, if, if you are going to have a public debt instrument, this needs to be the same as any others because people just you know cannot check all the details and the 200 pages of documentation. And in any case, they have no say because they would be like a fraction of the, the entire pot of money. So I guess maybe the, the distinction there will be for these very large checks, but either you don't need any standardization, like your loan is kind of trivial, it's big, but it's like very mm. simple and you're a stable company and it's, and, it's, and it's all, you know, you don't need any customization, then you can go public debt. And then if you need more customization, more flexibility and anything, you know, uh, the covenants would be important or things like that, then you, you, private debt would be, again, almost the only way to get it done. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's right. I think generally, though, you know, we're going to a private debt uh, lender would have significantly. So in some cases, it might be more flexible, but it's definitely significantly tighter documentation than you would see in a public, you know, term loan B. So if you're willing to, and maybe it's driven by an M and A situation, maybe it's driven by the past performance of a company. Maybe you just want to have a single counterparty as your lender, as opposed to hundreds of different counterparties. So there are different reasons why you might choose to go to a large private loan, let's say three or 500 million. And those are getting done, uh, you know, in, in an increasing number sort of over the years. But generally, if you want more flexible documentation, you would go and no covenants, you go to the public market. If you can live with you know, sort of tighter restrictions. Because don't forget, if you do a deal with a single borrower, you and I are in it together really till the end. So we just need to make sure that that is that sort of lower liquidity. It's compensated for by, you know, tighter documentation yeah. just to ensure that, um, you know, sort of the risk reward is balanced. So we saw that, that um, basically very naturally private debt, squeezes the banks out and may actually also squeeze a lot of the public debt out as the funds being raised are, are getting larger. But this is all good, but markets are fairly competitive. So 
if there is more space for private debt, then there is more private debt providers stepping in, uh, which means that they push down uh, returns. They may weaken this documentation, right? You say, you know, we have covenants that mm. are stricter, et cetera, but if there are more people competing, you may want to have stricter covenants, but if somebody steps in with less strict covenants and this person gains market shares over you, and it's a, it's a race to the bottom. So we, 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 are we seeing already that, and is there a danger of seeing these, these uh, lower returns, weaker documentation, uh, and, and possible, you know, higher default than people anticipated? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, and I'll go, and then Cassie, you can chip in. It's, it's really a supply-demand relationship, because you're really talking about the amount of the supply of private debt capital versus the demand for it. And what we've seen so far, you know, over the last ten years, is that the demand for private debt um, has, you know, has been increasing right rapidly, and that's because really banks are withdrawing from the market. So the while you've had a large, you know, increase in supply, the demand has really been greater than the than the supply. Also, at the same time, you've got record amounts of sort of private equity around as well, you know, looking for um, uh, looking for places to um, to be deployed. So that supply demand imbalance has really kept sort of, you know, the, you know, the, has really kept pricing, you know, relatively stable, has kept documentation relatively stable because of the, you know, the increase in, um, you know, in demand, you know, for the product. I think as the markets mature over time, of course, and if supply goes up and demand goes down, then you'll see sort of pressure on both pricing, you know, and documentation. And you've seen that in the U.S., which is a, probably, I don't know, probably 10 years ahead of Europe with respect to the maturity you know, of the market. But so far, it's been, we've been, as I said, we've been pretty stable in terms of uh, pricing and documentation. Yeah, makes sense. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Cassie, any concluding remarks? Yes, I was just going to add to, to what Eric was saying is that there's, there's two other factors that we're seeing in the European market as, as, you know, as private debt continues to develop. And one is it really is becoming a scale game. And so you're, you're very right in saying, you know, as it's a growing part of the market, there have been lots of entrants. But really the top 10 to 15 uh, private debt funds in Europe are taking the vast majority of the volume. And so that scale is accelerating that, you know, a level of consolidation in the market. So I think that's another trend to, to look out for. Um, so, so I think that's, that's definitely something that's going to show, you know, who are the winners and, and losers. And I think the other point around, you know, our terms just going one way, so tighter pricing, looser terms, I think we will also be, um, you know, in the same way that this this happens in, in other debt markets is we will be linked to the economic context. So, you know, something that we have seen during COVID is during times of uncertainty, we have much more negotiating power, um, much more negotiating power to, to get the terms that, that we require. And obviously when there's, you know, economic bonanza, then there's going to be looser terms, lower pricing. Um, so we, I think we should expect to see this, this trend sort of go up and down with the cycles. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, both uh, Eric and, 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 and Cassie. Um, this was great. This was private debt laid bare. Um, we focus on Europe. Don't forget to, to subscribe. Congratulations on your acquisition of one more piece of knowledge. Ciao, ciao.